Welcome to the I-29 Moo U Dairy Podcast. I-29 Moo University is a consortium of land-grant universities in Minnesota, Iowa, South Dakota, and Nebraska. This podcast covers timely news, information, and research for today's dairy industry. Welcome to the I-29 Moo University Dairy Podcast. My name is Fred Hall, and I'm the Northwest Iowa Dairy Specialist for Iowa State Extension. And I'm here with my co-worker, Jen Bentley, the ISU Extension Dairy Specialist in Northeast Iowa. Welcome back to the podcast, Jen. Well, thanks for having me on, Fred. I think we have a, a good topic today as we talk about dairy markets and look at kind of the upcoming future, what's going to happen in 2023. So looking forward to it. Today, we're excited to visit with Betty Burning. She operates Betty Burning Consulting, which provides services ranging from supply chain optimization to market intelligence for the food and agriculture sectors. Betty has extensive experience in the agriculture supply chain and has held a wide variety of roles, including senior dairy buyer at General Mills, loan officer at Farm Credit, extension educator at the University of Minnesota, and has worked on her family's dairy farm in central Minnesota. These experiences have enabled her to understand both the challenges farmers face, as well as the decision-making process of food companies and consumers. She is also an analyst for the Daily Dairy Report. Welcome to the podcast, Betty. Hi, Fred. Hi, Jen. Thanks for having me. Let's start on the demand side of the market equation. What do you see happening on exports? Well, yesterday, all of the August trade data was released, and U.S. dairy exports continue to be really strong in 2022. So year to date, um, through, through August, we are actually 3.2% ahead of 2021. So, so that's a really good thing for U.S. dairy. When we look at just the month of August, actually, we actually had the highest August export volumes that we've ever had. So also really good for U.S. dairy. And then when we kind of start to break things down a, a little more granularly, into, you know, the different commodities, cheese, butter, and whey exports, all, you know, really strong year-over-year gains. Nearly 85 million pounds of cheese were shipped in August. 14 million pounds of butter were exported in August from the United States, which is a really big butter number. So it's good to keep in mind, too, um, given the really high butter prices right now, the 14 million pounds of butter that was shipped in August likely was not booked at August prices, but you know, those contracts are negotiated several months in advance and then the numbers don't come through until the product actually ships. So those um, exports were probably booked, you know, in the springtime or late spring. That said, um, I want to talk a little bit about way too. China is a huge market for U.S. way. They hadn't been buying as much for a while because of um, their hog herd was experiencing African swine fever, but that's all over now and margins are better. So they are back to exporting U.S. way in a big way. We have over 50% of the market share there. Uh, in total for the month of August, the U.S. sent uh, 138.3 million pounds 
of whey abroad. So cheese, whey, butter, all really good. U.S. dairy exports, all really good in August year to date. Uh, just think about this. 2021 was a record year for U.S. dairy exports and 2022 may top it. So really good. You may notice I have not mentioned nonfat dry milk. And, and that's really the only place where we are seeing some weekend demand. And we can get into why that is maybe in a little bit here. But U.S. dairy exports by volume. Yeah, they're, we're having a great, great year. Let's kind of refresh for our listeners on butter, because butter intrigues me. Up until recently, we were a net importer of butter. It's only recently we export. Yeah, yes, that's very true. Um, that we, I like to monitor that relationship, too. I think some of what is going on, like I said, U.S. butter earlier this year was more competitive with the rest of the world. So we were shipping more abroad. Uh, we were importing quite a bit of butter during COVID-19. A lot of that is Irish butter uh, from Kerrygold, for example. And I think during COVID, when we were importing so much, that really was just driven by consumers wanted butter. They didn't really care what the price was. So however they could get it. Uh, they were going to take it. And obviously we saw a lot of supply chain snarls when everything was shut down. So however they could get butter, they would take it. Right now, though, we are shipping a lot abroad. Some is still coming in from Ireland. And a lot of that butter that is imported to the U.S., you know, it's being bought by like, say, Costco to go on the grocery shelf. So it's not necessarily people saying, boy, Irish butter is cheaper than U.S. butter. So right now I'm going to go out and I'm going to book a bunch of Irish butter and, you know, try to save some money at the margins. It's more, I'm a big retailer. I think I can sell this at a, re, you know, on the grocery shelf. So I'm going to import some to sell to consumers. So it's a little bit different, you know, than, than some of the other commodities in that regard. So Betty, you mentioned we've had pretty strong export markets in the last two years and coming into 2023, do you think these will remain at those levels? Do you, or do you think we're kind of at a plateau coming into 2023? That's a good question. It's I'm an economist, so it depends. I think that's the right economic answer uh, in all seriousness. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure that, that we are at a plateau yet, surprisingly. And there's a bunch of different reasons for that, like a lot of people are talking, there may be a global recession coming or that it has started. I think that's a really fair statement too. When we think about, you know, the demand side of things, what does a recession mean? It means in the developing world, they may buy less dairy. And so I mentioned milk powders already. We're seeing some declining demand there. Well, when you think about who buys milk powders, it is more the developing world. So if they're experiencing high inflation and, you know, looking down the barrel of a recession, yeah, they're going to be buying um, less milk powder. Then you couple that with, as far as powders go, worldwide, there's decent supplies of milk powder. So that market is actually a little bit more competitive than some of the other commodities. So it's possible we might see, you know, powders kind of continue to lag um, for 2022. You know, I don't want to 2021 was a record year for milk powders, so it's going to be tough to beat that. But certainly, you know, in 2022, we may still export as much as we did in 2019 and in 2020, but we are seeing um, some demand come off there. When we think about butter, cheese, and whey, though, those markets are a little bit tighter. There's just not a lot of excess supply in the 
a global dairy commodity market right now. Um, New Zealand and Australia, their milking seasons kind of go summer to summer. So when we look at last season, they both had really weak seasons last year and the new season or last season, I should say, I always say years and season and <laughs> mess it up. Their last season wasn't real strong. And when we look at the new season, that's just getting underway. Also not real strong in terms of production. And then when you look at Europe, there's a lot of structural change happening there. There's, you know, just fewer cows and the milk, uh, so causing milk production to be down. So yeah, I am, I'm actually in the camp that, yep, if there is a recession, I think that some dairy demand will be lost, but because the supply side of things is kind of weaker right now from the EU, from Oceania, it may be a really good opportunity, continue to be a really good opportunity for U.S. dairy to export because there just won't be a lot of excess product in the marketplace. Let's follow that export thought on how does the value of the U.S. dollar affect our dairy exports? Well, it certainly has an impact. The dollar has, right, it's been strengthening throughout the year. Um, you know, over the summer, it was really strong still strong today. You know, I mentioned butter already and that when the butter that shipped in August was booked, it was, you know, back in the springtime. So the dollar would have been weaker. So like things like butter, you know, I'm not super optimistic that we're going to continue to export 14 million pounds a month because butter has gotten more expensive. And then you add in the fact that the dollar has strengthened. We're not as competitive in that. The U.S. is not as competitive in that space as it was earlier in the year. But when you look at the other commodities, the U.S., even with the stronger dollar, is relatively competitive from a price standpoint. The other piece, too, I, I, mean, I already mentioned this, there's just not a lot of extra product in the marketplace for certain commodities because of this kind of global milk supply being down. So that means buyers, if they want it, number one, they're going to, you know, try to get it as cheaply as they can, which on many commodities, the U.S. price competitively. And then if they want it, they're, they're going to get it from whoever has it. And the U.S. is a place where uh, milk production is growing right now. We have the product, you know, we're in good position. The dollar, you're right. Let me be very clear. The dollar, a strong, a strong dollar can have an impact on exports. We're just not seeing a lot of it yet or now because we're comp we're still competitive and we have the product. We may have covered most of this, Betty, talking about some of these challenges. I know you mentioned, you know, that possibility of recession. There's just a limited maybe global supply of milk out there. Are there other challenges as we move into 2023 that we need to consider? Yeah, I'm just thinking, well, feed costs. $25 milk sounds really good, right? Like, but that's that's only your revenue. So what's going to happen with your costs? If your costs are $27, $25 milk doesn't look very good. By the way, I'm not suggesting anyone has $27, 100 weight costs, but I'm just saying it's all relative, right? And costs, while milk prices have been stronger in 22 than 2021 or 2020, costs are also higher too. So I would expect that producers, you know, margins could, especially for those that purchase feed, you know, margins are going to be tighter. I think that's one big thing to be watching out for. I already kind of alluded to it, but we see people as we head into a recession trade down in terms of 
what they buy. So here in the U.S., like dairy is just a staple in our diet. People are going to continue to consume dairy even if we are in a recession. What we are already starting to see a little bit is maybe I don't go out at a sit-down restaurant. Maybe I go to fast food. And so instead of you know, eating a night, really nice meal that's made with butter and hard cheeses and cheddar, things like that. I'm going to a fast food place where they use processed cheese, for example. So I'm kind of trading into less expensive dairy commodities. What we see in the developing world is that they may not purchase or they will purchase much less dairy because it's a protein. And in times of, you know, tightness, they're just not, you know, the money isn't there um, for most consumers in, in those parts of the world to be able to afford protein or to be able to afford as much protein with their food dollar. So I would expect, like um, I already mentioned, you know, to see the powders, if we're headed into a recession, to see those exports maybe decline or to be, yeah, to have weaker demand for that. Interest rates too, I mean, we've seen interest rates jump here in the U.S., that's going to have an impact. Jumping back to the farmer side of things, that's certainly going to have an impact on expansions, whether you're a producer or a processor. And really, I mean, around the world, the central banks are, are raising rates. So it will have an impact in other parts of the world too, certainly. And then we haven't even talked about all the supply chain stuff. But yeah, I, I think labor shortages have been a common issue globally. That was one of the issues in Australia last year with their weaker season. It, it just simply was like they didn't have labor and some farmers just said, well, I'm going to have beef instead, or I'm going to have fewer cows because I don't have the labor to support it. I think some of those things, you know, are, are starting to Im improve like Australia, for example, I can't think of the name of the program. I wrote about it. They've started some programs to try to alleviate some of the labor shortages. And here in the U.S., you see that things are starting to get better, but all of it, you know, we're still kind of working out of it and working out of some of the supply chain issues. So I think all those things will continue to be factors in 2023. Have you seen the the logistic issue that we experience across the <laughs> globe or is it unique to both of our coast? Do you mean just trying to get product moved around? Yeah, trucks and large boats and just has it been a worldwide issue? I think it's been a worldwide issue for sure. Yeah, even the summer, you know, you look at like the river levels were really low in Europe. So barges weren't able to move, you know, throughout the river rivers in central Europe and then China had uh, some issues too. The barges couldn't get through, but they rely, some of their provinces rely really heavily on hydroelectricity that's generated by the river. So if the river levels are low, then they don't have energy, right? So then manufacturing plants aren't running and a big part of China's GDP is manufacturing. So then you see kind of a decline in manufacturing and then less money to buy powders. So I, I think you see these supply chain issues across the globe. The labor shortage really seems to have been, I mean, it was an issue here, but I read a fair amount about it in, in Oceania too, just due to some of the restrictions they had in place after um, COVID-19 because they, they rely on help from outside their countries. And so when those folks weren't able to travel to Australia and New Zealand, that certainly created issues too. 
but yeah, I think uh, some of the problems definitely that we are experiencing here in the United States really are global issues. And, you know, I tell when I speak to people, I tell them, you know, we need to know what's going on here at home. But a drought in New Zealand is going to impact our milk prices, right? And a war in Ukraine could wind up impacting commodity prices. So it's it's not just a domestic market understanding what the global current events are can help you to shape your opinion on which direction you might think the markets are headed. We've kind of casually reference world prices Mm -hmm. you know the most recent global dairy trade event uh, saw the price index down three and a half percent with the the weather issues and the the political issues is that making sense to everyone or is that an anomaly that's a great question just like off the cuff, I was a little bit surprised by that. I'm not sure that I expect that the dairy markets are going to, you know, continue to leap up like gangbusters because at a certain point people just aren't going to buy products, right? They're going to, they're going to substitute. But I was a little surprised to see the, the weakness there. And I'm not, I'll be real honest. I'm not totally sure what was driving that because if you, you know, from what I understand, the season, like I already said, in New Zealand has kind of been off to a slow start. So yeah, it does. To me personally, it feels like a little bit of an anomaly that it was down that much. But, you know, let's see what happens again in two weeks. Let's see what happens um, in the in-between week and the, the pulse auction. And there might be, you know, more data to to support that or more pieces that start to come together to make sense. Okay, let's switch over to the supply side. We've already referenced weather has been a big factor worldwide. Do you see some countries changing their systems to combat feed and and health stresses? And I'll use New Zealand as an example. We see a lot of uh, political changes that have made it difficult for the dairies to pasture. Are they going to be putting more of what I would call our conventional Western dairy, monoslope barn, thousand cows on cement with the manure system? Are we going to see those kind of changes? You know, I don't think in a place like New Zealand we will because they don't really have the feed for the cows there. They would have to purchase it, and that gets to be pretty cost prohibitive because they would. They, I've never been to New Zealand, but from what I understand, it's gorgeous and like lots of mountains and not lots of flat land to uh, to grow crops. It's about I think the size of Colorado, so it's not really that big either. So if I have to, you know, barge in all my <laughs> my feed, it gets to be pretty expensive. So I don't expect that in New Zealand. You are right. You know, there's more policies in place regulating the dairy industry, meaning there probably won't be much more growth. Also, if you just think about it, if I'm the size of Colorado and I graze all my animals on that land at a certain point, you know, you can only have so many animals per hectare acre at a certain point you're full, which is kind of where New Zealand is at. So in terms of like New Zealand expanding and becoming, you know, grow, you know, continuing to grow its industry, that's going to be done primarily through yields. At least that's my opinion on the matter. And then when you look elsewhere in the world, I mean, 
all over, there's just more environmental regulations as countries, states, even corporations move to, you know, net zero. Yeah, you see more regulations. There were the, the protests in the Netherlands this summer. The dairy farmers there are being asked to reduce nitrogen emissions. Really all the livestock farmers there are being asked to reduce nitrogen uh, emissions. And the numbers I saw were basically, it means 30% of the farms may need to exit the business in the Netherlands, which obviously that had a lot of people in uproar. And I, I mean, I think we're going to continue to see more regulations like that. The Netherlands is kind of unique. It's not, obviously, it's not a real big country. It is really densely packed with livestock relative to its neighbors in the rest of Europe. And then it also sits, you know, really low, like right at sea level. So like, you know, you think of Amsterdam, you think of all those canals. So they, I mean, there's some legitimate concerns I would say about, boy, we have a lot of livestock here and we have a lot of water here too. How do we keep this water clean? Because we need the water to grow the animals. And so we have water to drink and, and do all the things we need to do. Um, yeah. But I do think just that these are very, very real things that are happening in the world. And I don't see it, it going away. And I mentioned earlier in our recording you know, there's structural changes taking place. I think this is one of the structural changes that's taking place. Like there are these different regulations coming into place, particularly in places where grazing is a big part of the model that, you know, there just aren't going to be more cows. There may be increases in production, but it's going to come primarily through increases in yields, not necessarily increases in cow numbers. So yeah, I think, um, I think it's a longer term trend. And then you can look, even here in our country, there's, you know, regulations. Um, if you look at like California, California, when I was in school, you know, that was, a, that was where you wanted to go if you were going to dairy farm. And now, I mean, you really can't expand much there for lots of different, there's all sorts of different regulations out there. And then there's regulations in other states. Some states, it's not even environmental. It might just be they don't have capacity to process the milk. So there's supply management programs in place. So I think that all of that is uh, likely to to continue. Absolutely. I think you brought up some really good points, brought home that great perspective of sustainability. And it really does mean something different to each of our countries as we produce milk, because what is sustainable here maybe isn't necessarily sustainable in other countries. And I think that ultimately impacts how our dairy ingredients get imported or exported, right? So as we conclude our discussion, do you have any take-home messages for our listeners or our producers as we think about some of this changing in our, in our dairy industry? Well, I think we have to be open to change, right? And open to having conversations. I've worked on both sides of the dairy supply chain, really the whole dairy supply chain. You know, I've milked cows, I've fed calves, I've cleaned barns, I've lent money to dairy farmers, I've bought milk um, to make a, a finished good. And it's really about being able to have this, this conversation. Sustainability is not just about being environmentally friendly. Like there's an element of that. If we don't have clean water, we're in a lot of trouble. If we don't have clean air, we're in a lot of trouble, right? At the same time, a dairy farmer is not going to stay in business if they can't be profitable. 
right? So there's a financial element to things too. People need to be also be financially sustainable. And then, you know, there's just the, like the people and social element of things too, that, you know, you're able to make a, a decent wage or when I was at General Mills, we talked about kind of the social element a lot in the developing world that, you know, if we were buying cocoa or vanilla, that it was done in a fair way, you know, that people were compensated fairly or that like child labor wasn't being used, for example. So as we think about sustainability, you know, it really needs to be this, this three-pronged approach. And I would encourage producers just to, to be open to the possibilities. I'm, I'm, I'm always really optimistic you know, when I was in grad school, my thesis was on anaerobic digesters. And after I ran my model, the conclusion I came to, and I mean, it was sound, the data supported it, was this really isn't economically feasible for most farms for a bunch of different reasons. You know, you got to have the right policies in place and so forth. I wrote, I don't, <laughs> my kids are going to listen to this and figure out my age now. They think I'm 26. Um, yeah, but that was written, you know, 15 years ago. For a lot of farms now, there's enough programs in place, the technology has improved enough, and there's enough different policies where a digester might make sense. It's changed. You know, we've gotten more innovative, more creative, such that some of these things work. So I'm optimistic that there are sustainable solutions out there that are also profitable. Because like I said, no dairy farmer is going to continue on in a business that's not profitable. It doesn't make sense, and it's not possible. So be be open to some of these ideas. I, I like cover cropping as an example too. That's been, you know, the, the folks I know that do it, they're like, it's really, it's helped me. You know, I am able to be more profitable. I have healthier soil. My yields are improved. There's another example of I'm doing something that's good in many ways, right? It's not just good because I make more money. It's also helping my soil and different things. So you know, being open to these ideas and just being willing to have the conversation. I have to say, you know, from working at a big food company, a lot of times those folks just, they don't totally understand some of the issues that farmers are facing or why something that might seem like a really good idea in a conference room, you know, at a Fortune 500 company really isn't going to be easily implemented on a farm. So just being willing to be patient and have those conversations and, and to advocate, you know, be part of those producer groups, talk to your legislate, legislator, all those things can really help too, I think, to turn the dial, but you have to be willing to just communicate and be open to what other people are saying, like, what is the solution? I, I have a good friend who works in sustainability and it was interesting. He really got it. He's like, no farmer's going to do this because it costs them money and they're tired of everything being passed on to them. But he's like, what his company was trying to do was, so we'll pay the farmer to do this for the first couple of years. And then when they see after a couple of years, they should be profitable. And if we're right, they will be profitable and we don't have to, to pay them anymore. But, he, you know, they got it that that's the farmer is also a business owner. We're really not that different. We're just a much bigger business, but we both are trying to be profitable at the end of the day. Someone needs to pay for this. We will pay for it for now. And then when the farmer is more profitable down the road, they can cover it because we've made them more profitable. So I think that's a really good example of the, the farms that were willing to do that, you know, had to be somewhat open to some new ideas and different ways of doing things. And I liked too, that the company was willing to, you know, put its money where its mouth was, if you will, and say, hey, 
So we're going to put it out there and we're going to help you out. And we're going to show you, we really, we believe in this. We're not just, you know, mandating that you do something. We believe in this. So we're going to help you out. And then hopefully down the road, you see really good results. As we wind down today's podcast, thank Betty for being part of it today. And if listeners are interested in a more in-depth discussion, I encourage them to register for Betty's I-29 Moo University webinar at 12 noon on November 10th. Thank our listeners for joining us on this episode of the I-29 Moo University Dairy Podcast. The podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website at i29mooyou.com. Thank you, and we'll conclude the podcast. We'd like to thank our 2022-2023 annual I-29 sponsors. Learn more about Iowa Corn Growers Association at iowacorn.org. I-29 MooU is an equal opportunity provider. For the full non-discrimination statement or accommodation inquiries, go to extension.iastate.edu forward slash diversity forward slash EXT.